This is The Sharp End, a podcast from accident to North American mountaineering. I'm Ashley Sapi, your host for the show. Today we're coming at the issue of accidents from a different angle. Normally, when you think of an incident, your brain goes to those directly involved. But I would say a large portion of accidents have to do with the rescue. On the last episode of The Sharp End, we left off when the rescuers came on scene to Eric and the Palisades. What I didn't play for you was the next 10 hours of rescue that ensued thereafter. There is a lot that goes into a rescue, more than many of us can fathom. And today, I have a gentleman on the show that will tell us about one particular rescue he was a part of. So listen up and please enjoy. Uh, So my name's Dave Weber. currently split my year between a couple of different organizations. Primarily, I'm one of the mountaineering rangers up on Denali in Alaska. And uh, I also work as a flight medic for Intermountain Life Flight in Salt Lake City, Utah. And then to kind of fill in my shoulder seasons, I do a bunch of instruction for different companies that teach technical rigging, avalanche skills, and some wilderness medicine. So pretty much how I spend and fill my year. Welcome to the show, Dave Weber. Is there anything that you would like to say before we get into the meat of the incident? Um, It's really important to come into this with a learning mindset. I I think it can be a tendency and really easy to point fingers and place blame. And it's really easy to to kind of second guess people's decision making when they are on the mountains. And I, I guarantee that all of us many times have, have gotten away with things in the mountains in the past. And uh, maybe one or two things being different in our decision making or the conditions of that day could have resulted in our story being in accidents in North American mountaineering. And so I think it's really important with, with all of the work you're doing on this podcast as, as listeners and and folks taking in this information that that you, you come away with it with a with a kind of the perspective of learning from it and not placing blame and not saying I wouldn't do that because because I think we can all if we're really honest with ourselves say that we've done similar things and possibly things that that should have resulted in an accident and thankfully they didn't. Yeah, David, I think that's good advice for our listeners going into this podcast. Um, so for today's story, I want to let the listeners know that David will talk a little bit about a particular incident he responded to in the Ruth Gorge. However, the meat of this show is more about the nature and realities of his job. So with that said, David, why don't you go ahead and open it up for us? Sure. Uh, the The specific incident that, that we're going to talk about happened um, on May 29th in the year 2010. And if readers and listeners want to find it, you can actually find it then in the Accidents in North American Mountaineering volume from 2011, the following year. Um, it's on page eight, and it's titled Avalanche um, in Denali National Park. And specifically, it was on a climbing route called Freezy Nuts. A little sidebar for our listeners, Freezy Nuts was first climbed in 1996 and since has seen sporadic traffic. It's about a 2,500-foot gully mixed with snow and ice. Uh, has a narrow feature maybe around 10 feet wide for about 1,000 feet. David told me that there is a, a large snowfield above this climb, which essentially acts as a funnel. Freezy Nuts is predominantly west, some southwest in there, um, and this route will see sun in the afternoon in May. 
And back to David. But mentioned before, this is uh, an accident that happened uh, in late May of 2010. And if uh, you're not familiar with Denali National Park and kind of the climbing areas in there, um, slightly to the east of Denali and Foraker and Mount Hunter um, is the Ruth Gorge and the Ruth Glacier. And it's a, a pretty prominent and uh, distinct climbing area in the range early season and for us that usually means March and April and sometimes into May you get quite a bit of ice climbing and, and snow climbing in that area and then as we transition into the summer season or the summer climbing season up there, up there which is usually June, July and even into August then you can transition into the, the rock that's in that area. And so this was this was still in that uh, window that we would typically consider the the winter conditions or the spring conditions where it's snow and ice climbing season. Although in this year in particular, uh, it seemed to be unseasonably warm, and there was a pretty consistent period where we weren't getting freezes at nighttime um, for multiple days in a row. So this particular May. Um, seem to be warmer than normal in particular and specifically when we're not getting those freezes at nighttime that's that's pretty unusual for that time of year and we don't usually see that trend at that elevation and the elevation in the roof where this incident occurred is right around 4,500 feet or 5,000 feet and we'll typically have freezing temperatures in there overnight well into June and sometimes even into July most years and so to have non-freezing temps in May is definitely unique. So what happened with this particular incident? The kind of the sequence of events um, from that that trip in particular, it was a party of four that had gone in a couple days before. They had gone in about four days before. Uh, they had tried to climb a couple other things and because of the warm temperatures and non-freezing conditions, they were starting in middle of the night um, on most climbs and and as they progressed into the climbs, they felt like the, the warming of the snowpack and the temperature was too much and the, the risk too high. So they, they actually backed off of their prior two climbs. Um, and the conditions were such that two of their parties ac actually uh, flew out the day prior to this accident. And then that left two uh, males behind who wanted to spend the remainder of their days. They actually had two more days on their, their scheduled trip. Uh, they wanted to spend in the range um, before departing. And so for us, um, they actually, we were notified the night of, of May 29th, and myself and another ranger were in Talkeetna at that time um, when we got the call. Um, but their day started at 1 o'clock in the morning on the 29th where they departed in, in what would typically be referred to as kind of an alpine start so that they could get up a route and down before the sun would, would really start to affect the slope that they were on. Um, other climbers in camp witnessed an avalanche come out of the Freezy Nuts kind of couloir um, in the afternoon, but they didn't realize that, that this party of two was on that climb since they had left so early in the morning and they hadn't discussed plans with that group before they left. Um, they were alerted that something could be wrong when that team of two didn't return in the evening back to the, the big kind of group camp that's in the Ruth Gorge. At what time did you receive this phone call? Uh, we were notified just before 9 p.m. in okay. Talkeetna. And you were notified 9-ish p.m. Alaska time by a camper who was on the Ruth um, who just noticed 
a slide that came down freezy nuts and but he didn't this person didn't really know if people are climbing on there he just saw a slide and noticed that two people didn't come back to their camp Right. Yeah. That, that slide that they witnessed was in the afternoon. And, and so they just observed it and, and kind of cataloged it in the back of their head. And they didn't make the call until uh, the two climbers didn't return to camp that evening is, is what really got their suspicions up that, that they should have been back at that point, especially because they knew that they had left early in the morning. You know, at that point in time, having left at one in the morning, they're now, you know, 20 hours into their day. So a few of us, uh, typically three or four, will then respond. So David tells me all about what goes on in the office when they get a call like that. They figure out who is available, who's on call, what resources they need, plans are being made. There is about a 30-minute response time. Rescuers are gearing up, getting dressed, and packing for any potential scenario, from staying the night in the field to performing a full-on extrication. At this point, they don't have very much information. So they plan for the worst. Then, finally, they all come together for a full briefing. The team David works for has a pretty extensive risk management assessment they use to formally address any objective and subjective hazards they may encounter. This briefing gives space for the team to address anything they may be worried about. And again, regardless of the scenario or the circumstance, that set up for us is, is pretty universal. We'll have three or four people in, in those few roles that I mentioned to help come up with a plan, execute a plan, and then have people to put in place as resources. And then after the extensive briefing, your team flies out. So we leave Talkeetna, go into the roof, and, and we weren't sure exactly the location uh, of this incident. And so we actually picked up the climber um, that had reported it to make sure that we were going to the right, right location and didn't want to be wasting a bunch of time looking for for an area that that maybe is the wrong one and so we wanted that person to be able to show us directly where they they saw an avalanche and similar to to other avalanche um, accidents if you can get the reporting party back to the place that they saw it or get their perspective it's often much easier to then find that last point scene or find where where people may be um, specifically in the the more traditional snow avalanche scenario um, that we might have with skiing or snowboarding. So very quickly after that, we were at the base of that couloir. And unfortunately, it became evident that there had been a large avalanche, an accident, and and um, we did locate uh, the two climbers. At that point, um, we were able to land. And um, unfortunately, in this scenario, uh, we, we did confirm that both climbers were deceased at that point that we had planned for for various different scenarios and in this scenario with the lateness of the day and um, the amount of work that would be required to to extricate fully and complete this mission uh, um, because of that that evening um, time that I mentioned we actually elected to to return the climber to camp and we returned to Talkeetna so that we could come back in the morning and, and take plenty of time to, to do an accident investigation and, and to, to um, clean up the scene in, in an appropriate manner and not, not do it in haste because we had a, a, a night wind, weather window or a night time window that we were operating up against. So, 
but you're in the land of the midnight sun. So did that benefit the team's ability to initiate this rescue? That is one of the benefits of working up in Alaska in the summer season is we've got long days and and our daylight hours go well into the evening. So we're able to operate into the evening and early morning where in most places and most other parks, um, we don't tend to to initiate many rescues in the night um, just because of the additional hazard burden. Um, and so it is a, a luxury of working in Alaska is that we can then leave Talkeetna as we did at you know, 10, 15 or 10, 20 at night and still have plenty of ambient light um, to affect a rescue if need be at that time of day. What happened to those two guys, David? Um, and so I think you can see a bunch of the details of it in the, um, in the accident report. And, and we're left with essentially three um, assumptions. There was an avalanche that occurred. Um, there was a fall that occurred. And there was an anchor that failed. And um, which of those things happened in what order, we'll never know. Um, but that terrain has, has a lot of uh, uh, snow slope above that climb. And, and so we, we went down the, the path of it being an avalanche, uh, likely that, that maybe hit the two from above and that caused a fall and potentially the anchor they were rappelling off of to fail. But again, no one will ever know that, but those three things did occur and uh, everything after that is ultimately speculation as, as is a lot of these accidents that other people aren't there to observe where we do our best to piece things together and learn from them in the ways that we can. So I wanted to comment on the fact that um, being objective is very difficult it's a very difficult thing to do in your field of work, particularly. Um, we say, be objective, keep your emotions separate. But if it's anyone that you know or that you have, have some sort of relationship with, it is extremely hard to pull your emotions out of these situations because we're, because we're human. Um, so can you touch on this a little bit? And I think that's a perfectly eloquent way to put it. You, you train for these scenarios a bunch in classroom or in scenario settings, and it can be really easy to become complacent with that. And it, like you said, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, I will be cool and calm under pressure and I will remain objective. And then when it's your friend, which that is who we recreate with. Like the people we're likely to see injured, unless you're on a search and rescue team, is going to be your friends that you're out climbing with or skiing with or boating with. And and that adds a, a huge complex element to it that by human nature, we're, we're not well programmed to, to respond in that calm, cool manner where I'm very calculated and objective. We tend to respond with emotion and that, that can only complicate matters. Mm. Um, there's a great saying that typically comes out of the military setting where they talk about going slow to go fast. And, and you can think of times, I'm sure, Ashley, where you've been frantic and doing something really quickly and you end up taking three times as long because you're screwing something up or you're tying something wrong or you set up something that's totally not what you had intended. And then you end up having to go back instead of just that calm, slow approach that ends up in the end being more efficient of a system than you would have set up in your in the chaos. I think every single one of us outdoor educators or 
Outdoor Fanatics has done that exact same thing at least once. Yeah, and and I I think you're exactly accurate, and it's kind of where I started this conversation off with is is I try really hard, and I think we all should to to identify with all of these stories and accidents every year that it's published, and and not get into that mindset of like, oh, that would never happen to me. And that just is maybe it hasn't happened to you, but I bet that we've all made the similar situation decisions that have gotten ourselves into the very similar predicaments that a lot of people every year get themselves into. And unfortunately, theirs result in accidents and ours is maybe a near miss, or maybe we're totally blind to it. And we don't even realize that we are that close to, to falling or getting hurt or whatever it was. Okay, David, I'm going to ask a pretty bold question. Um, and I bet a lot of our listeners are wondering this too. How do you deal with the hardships of this job? That's a really good question, Ashley. Um, I think different people respond differently on any given day. And I think each of us responds differently in each scenario as well. Um I think at baseline, every single person that we interact with, both at my job in Alaska and then also here in Salt Lake at Life Flight, uh, we're typically assisting people or interacting with people on likely one of the worst days that they've had and or that their families had. And I, I try to keep that in the back of my mind at all times. And I am doing my best my team is doing their best and we try to show that to families and there's been a great trend especially in the life flight side of things and the hospital side of things in recent years to allow family members to see aggressive resuscitation like CPR and and other um, invasive procedures so that they can actually witness everything that's being done for their family member um, and I think no matter what the circumstance is, I always try to just put myself in the place of those family members or that family member that might be flying with us or the climbing partners that are with these individuals um, that we're interacting with in the mountain. And, and that, for me, makes it much easier to be really compassionate and, and do the best I can to help either the, the people that are hurt, but also the people that are around them um, to start to heal. Um, it's extremely rewarding work, um, but that's not to say it's not difficult. What would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation, David? Uh, I think just going back to, to what I've said a couple of times, um, we have all been there at some point. And we will probably continue to be in those situations where one wrong move or one misstep could result in an accident. And so learn as much as you can from other people's and really try to ingrain it and not point fingers and not place blame and not think that we're immune to some of those same things. I've become hugely fond of the saying that hope is a horrible risk management tool. Mm. It's probably one of my favorites. And I think so many times in my past where I was hoping that that 
piece of gear was going to hold, or I was hoping that slope wasn't going to slide, or I was hoping that I didn't trip or fall or need to self-arrest. And those are the times that if I had the chance or when I feel that currently, I try to step back and reassess what I'm doing. Because if I'm relying on hope (laughs) to keep me safe, uh, that is likely just psychological protection and not actual protection at all. I think your gut instinct and your intuition is the greatest uh, tool you've got to manage risk. No matter how many times you've been out in the backcountry or done something, when you have a bad gut feeling, listen to that and make your group listen to that. I, I think we hear over and over in either the accident investigation period or just in speaking with, with other members of a team when there has been an accident, almost Every time someone says or multiple people say, I knew this was a bad idea or I had a bad feeling or I knew this was dumb, those are the feelings where you don't need to know why you have that bad feeling or why your gut's telling you something's wrong. Just turn around. That place, that trip, that ski or climb will be there tomorrow or when it's more appropriate for you to be there. But listen to your gut, listen to your teammates and stay safe. Well, thank you so much, David Weber, for being on the podcast. You do incredible work, and I appreciate your passion and commitment to your job. Yeah, and I've got to compliment you, Ashley, and the AAC. I think this is a terrific podcast, an amazing avenue to get this info out in a in a different way. You know, if if people aren't subscribers or don't receive the the printed version of this or don't look online i think this is just any way that you can get this message out that we're all susceptible to this and and it can take years of experience and maybe multiple injuries and and accidents on our own before we finally have some of these things click and the more of this info that you're you can get out the better and i I really commend you on that so i thank you on behalf of all the listeners for putting all this out here Thanks again, David. Thanks to the American Alpine Club for helping me launch the sharp end. And if you're looking for another podcast to add to your collection, check out the Mountain Meister. Each week, the host, Ben Shank, picks the brains of the world's boldest adventurers, covering things like risk, human behavior, and other thought-provoking, sometimes uncomfortable topics. Just search MTN Meister wherever you listen to your podcasts. Accidents in North American Mountaineering is an annual publication of the American Alpine Club with frequent online reports and updates. AAC members receive the book for free each year. To learn more, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org. Until the next episode, play hard and be smart.